that. But we actually became probably really great friends, like outside of the community group, outside of uh, the, the, the Bible study itself. Uh, we did tons of stuff together. We played video games, board games like Settlers of Catan, uh, for those of you who don't know that. Um, we also played a lot of sports together, hung out. But I think the thing that, that we almost did the most that created a lot of community was we just we ate meals together. Uh, we went to dinner together multiple times a week. We just got to hang out um, over, over food, which is great. Um, but I remember one day, it was around dinner time, where I was sitting in my dorm room, probably working on some much-needed architecture homework that always happened. Um, when I glanced, I leaned back in my chair and I glanced out the window, and that's where I saw them. There, walking across the street as they laughed and joked was a group of my friends, apparently heading off to dinner. I quickly searched my phone, picked it up, and tried to, to see if I had missed like a text or a call about any dinner plans, but to no avail, I saw nothing. You know, thoughts quickly flashed through my mind. Why hadn't they invited me? Did they forget to invite me? Did they even care about me? Was I, was I even accepted in their group? You know, I was, I was actually really heartbroken and, and devastated by that, by that thought, um, that I, would, I was missing out on that. Um, I was trying to make this college thing work, make some friends, but apparently even my, my closest friends were letting me down. I was trying to fit in, be a likable guy, but I guess that wasn't enough. Well, you see, I have this problem. I often tend to try and make sure that I am accepted by others at all times. I try to be someone I'm not in order to, to fit in. I fear situations where I might have to share something personal because I don't want to be exposed. I don't want people to see my faults or my sin, or maybe find out that I'm a fraud. Not only do I do this with other people, though, I do this with God, too. I try to hide my sin from God. I don't confess my sin to him because I think or I believe that he might not forgive me if I do. Or maybe I just don't even think I need God. My perspective of sin becomes skewed. I think sin appears less offensive than it actually really is. I tell myself that my sin isn't as bad as somebody else's, just so that way I think that God will approve of me. Can you relate to any of those things? Or any of those thoughts that maybe you've had in your life? Suppose I were to ask you to, to come up here, stand in my place, and, and share something personal in your life. How would you respond? You know, probably what would go through your mind if you're like me is you might want to crawl into your seat or, you know, find the nearest exit. You don't really want to do that. That's what our, our culture and our, our world tells us that's, that's normal because it says that we must not let anyone see our weaknesses and, and the sins in our lives. So deep down, we are, we are driven by this idea or this fear of exposing ourselves, all of our sin and our weaknesses, because we believe that we will be met with shame, dishonor, and judgment by God and others. We make acceptance from God and others an idol in our lives. Ultimately, though, in my experience, I've found that trying to cover up my real self hasn't brought lasting acceptance. And it might be the, the case in your situation, too. So is it possible, though, to be free um, of being exposed, free of this fear of being exposed? Is there a way we can be confident in who we truly are regardless, regardless of other people's acceptance? And is there someone who truly does accept us, who we can run to? 
Well, the good news is there is. Uh, we read about the answer to these questions in 2 Samuel chapter 9, where we learn that Jesus is the only one who gives us this confidence to be completely accepted in him. But before we get to the passage, let me pray first. Lord, thanks for this wonderful night. Thanks for bringing all these, these wonderful students here to crew, here to College Ave. Um, Lord, I, I pray just for this evening, I ask for your wisdom and your boldness um, just in the, in the words to speak, Lord. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill this room and enlighten all of our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, thank you and your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn with me, if you haven't yet, to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Or if you didn't bring a Bible, you can follow on the screen behind me here. If you aren't familiar with 2 Samuel, it is in the, it's a book in the Old Testament. Um, and it, it mainly tells the story of David as the king of Israel. So in chapters 1 through 10 of 2 Samuel, we read of uh, David's rise as king of Israel. And then chapters 11 through 20, his, his failures and things that he didn't do right, and his, his basically his eventual downfall as king. So chapter 9 then, right in the middle, essentially like David's pinnacle and, and the highest part of, of, his, of his reign as king, or as, of Israel's ideal king. So the story opens with David asking a question, and we read about that in, in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Pretty simple question, right? But to understand this question, we must understand a few key characters and events that have happened prior to this. So Saul, this person Saul that is talked about, was Israel's previous king, who, when he had failed to obey God, God chose David to be the new king of Israel and, and replace Saul. Jonathan was Saul's son and yet had become David's closest friend and comrade. They became actually more like brothers than just friends. Like, they were that close. So about 15 to 20 years prior to this passage that we read, Jonathan had made a covenant with David. So we, we read back in 1 Samuel 20, 14 through 17, of this covenant. Jonathan says here, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. This covenant, this idea of covenant, was more than just a promise. More than just a I give you my word kind of thing, or more than a pinky promise we're all familiar with. A biblical covenant presupposes two or more parties who come together to make a contract, agreeing on promises, stipulations, privileges, and responsibilities. It also is a bond. A covenant refers to two or more parties bound together. Well, now as we jump back forward to the end of chapter 8, it's right before our passage, we we read that David has now subdued all of, da or God had subdued all of David's enemies, which Jonathan had talked about previously. So immediately, right after that, David turns his attention back to his friend Jonathan and the covenant that he had made with him. David had not forgotten his end of the deal. Well, let's continue reading in chapter 9 then. It says, Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. 
And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Macher, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. So this guy Ziba enters the picture, um, and he says he's a servant of Saul, but he's most likely uh, a steward or like a caretaker of Saul's estate. So he'd be the natural person to go to if you, know, if you want to find someone from Saul's family, he'd be the one to know that. So here's where the, the tension begins, really, in this passage. So upon hearing David's request, Ziba would most likely have known, would have known, what normally happened to the family line of the previous king. So he most likely expected David, when David you know, asked this question to him, most likely expected him to be seeking Saul's descendants to actually destroy them. And this was actually pretty normal. This is called dynamic succession. So during this time period, when new kings would, would rise to the throne, you know, they would actually destroy all of the old king's family line to basically secure their place on the throne. They didn't want any threats to it. They want to secure it. So it's just like saying, you know, Barack Obama, our president right now, he would have destroyed actually the entire family line of the Bush family. So now, it's like today, there's Jeb Bush. He's running for president, right? It's like he would have actually had no chance. He would have been taken out a long time ago. Kind of interesting, right, how that works? So the Bush family would have never had another chance at the White House. But that plays such a big part in, in what's going on in this passage. So we look back at this passage and see that Ziba, even though he knew the consequences or he understood what was going on, he informs David about a son of Jonathan. But it's interesting to note that he's quick to point out of this, of this son's crippled condition in verse 3. Just trying to throw in there and pointing out like, yeah, there is a son, but he's actually crippled. He's no threat to the throne. Don't worry about him. We now have these two tensions, though, these two questions that come up when we, when we see this. So first, on the one hand, would King David act with kindness or vengeance towards the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, the previous king, an enemy of the throne? And then secondly, since Jonathan's son was crippled, how would David, the ideal king of Israel, be viewed if he killed a lame son who was hardly a threat to the throne? Well, in light of these tensions, the story continues in verse 6, where we read, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. So just picture this. In comes this guy Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both of his feet. He's probably, you know, getting, getting carried or he's on, holding on to people's shoulders or maybe he's rolling in on a wheelchair. I don't know if they had that back then. But in some way, he's... He's coming in with his crippled condition and says that he's falling on his face before David. Can you imagine the fear that he must have felt? He was probably trembling from head to toe, unable to even look up at David. Judgment and condemnation was surely awaiting him. Sure, Mephibosheth knew just like Ziba what normally happened to the previous king's family. He was well aware of that. He was expecting the death sentence. He was completely 
in that moment at the mercy of David. How would David respond to this young man who's spread out in front of him? Well, let's read on. Let's actually find out. So in verse 7, it says, And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. Wow, isn't that amazing? Instead of the death sentence, Mephibosheth receives kindness. It's, not, it's no ordinary kindness either. It comes from the Hebrew word hesed. So this term hesed embodies the concept of faithfulness, unwavering love, kindness, just generally kindness. It also encompasses love, grace, and mercy based on a covenant relationship. So this kindness that David gave was more than just simple kindness that we think of today. It was faithful kindness based upon the promised covenant with his friend Jonathan. Mephibosheth did not deserve this kindness because he didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet David still gave it to him. Well, now we, as we read on to understand what this kindness consisted of. So, finishing off verse 7, it says, And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So we see here that this kindness consisted of two main components. So the first is that David restored the land of Saul to, to Mephibosheth and people to steward it. So in ancient Israel, during this time period, having land was actually pretty important. It meant having food. Because they were an agrarian society, the Israelites were really highly dependent upon the land for food and to sustain life. So essentially, having land meant having life. So David here is not just giving him a land to, you know, to possess, but he's actually giving Mephibosheth new life, as we see in, in verses 7 and 10. Even Mephibosheth says that he's a dead dog in verse 8 and doesn't feel like he deserves David's kindness. Up to this point, he had been living in complete dependence upon others to care for him and to give him life. So the second component, so giving, giving him land, but the second component was David also gave Mephibosheth a position at the king's table. So notice the three times in verses 7, 10, and 11 where it is mentioned, Mephibosheth was, was now considered an equal to the king's sons, those who were heirs of the throne. He was being brought into a new family, given a new status and a new identity. Well, uh, there's two more verses here. Uh, the final verses just give four final summary statements about Mephibosheth. It says, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. 
Well, we learned that Mephibosheth had a son, Micah. So David's kindness not only blessed Mephibosheth, it actually blessed the entire family line of Jonathan. And then the last line in this, in this passage is just a really sober reminder to the readers that Mephibosheth, even though he was given a new identity or a new family status or given new life, he lived in continual need of David's kindness for the rest of his life. Isn't this a great story? I don't know, maybe you guys haven't ever read this, but I find this is just a really fascinating story. David, this great king and great character, he's full of you know, kindness and compassion uh, towards Mephibosheth. Well, I mean, as you, as you guys read that passage, or as you guys look at that, you know, who do you guys put yourself, like, who do you put yourself in, in their shoes? Who do you, which character of the story do you put yourself in? I bet for many of us, our tendency is to try and, and place ourselves in, in David's shoes. You know, he's the, he's the, the star of the show, right? Um, I mean, he's Israel's greatest king after God's own heart, so of course he's the focus, right? Our application simply becomes then all we have to do is show kindness to those in need like David did, right? That's what we got to do. But if that's the only thing that, that we see in this passage, we actually fail to grasp the heart of the message. Ultimately, David is exemplifying more than just an example for us. He's actually representing and foreshadowing a future greater king, Jesus, who would come after him, showing the ultimate kindness to every spiritually broken Mephibosheth in the whole world, and who now reigns in heaven, on, on his heavenly throne. In a similar fashion, Mephibosheth is not simply an example for people who are physically unable to walk. Yes, in Mephibosheth we do find a crippled, utterly helpless man who is totally dependent upon others, but he's also a man who's hiding. He's afraid to approach the king because he's fearful of judgment and condemnation. Essentially fearful of the death sentence. It's a pretty big deal. Don't we do the same thing? How we also tend to go into hiding because we fear how God and others will respond if they find out about our true selves? We, like Mephibosheth, don't want to expose ourselves to the king. We are broken, spiritually speaking, utterly helpless in saving ourselves because we depend upon others for approval and acceptance. Which essentially, if we do that, becomes our, our identity and our life. So, because we idolize acceptance from God and others, we fear exposing our sin and our weaknesses. We believe that we will be met with shame, dishonor, and judgment by God and others. In our culture today, we often see this take place with people in authority responding in, in a way that is shameful and, and disrespecting and, and casting judgment on us instead of kindness. So over the past two and a half years, I've had a, an opportunity to, to mentor a local third grade student at an elementary school. His name is Keaton. So last year, I usually met with him just over our lunch period, like a half hour time, um, where I'd you know, have lunch with him, just spend some quality time, maybe play some games, talk with him about school, and you know, just be there for him, essentially showing that I care about him by spending time with him. Well, one particular day last spring, I had the opportunity to stay for his recess time as well. So that was like a, a big deal for him, and he was super excited about that. 
Um, but we, were, we went outside, started playing a game of basketball with some other kids, and Keaton got caught up in a scuffle with another kid on, on the playground. And this other kid grabbed a hold or uh, latched onto Keaton's shirt and, and tore a, a huge hole into, into Keaton's shirt. Well, they were both sent off to the office straight away, like you would you'd imagine in that situation, um, where, where they arrived at the principal's office with in, in trembling and fear-stricken faces. I could just see it in their faces, just how they were, they were afraid. They were expecting the worst to be handed down by the principal. While the principal heard their stories and without skipping a beat, handed down detention, disappointment, and shame on the two of them. You know, this broke my heart for these boys because their deepest fears became true. Although they received some adequate discipline, you know, for their actions, they received it with nothing but shame and condemnation attached to it. Can you relate to this story? What things have you done in your life, maybe that causes feelings of shame and causes you to be fearful to tell others to approach the throne of Jesus? What makes you ashamed or afraid of the gospel, or makes you ashamed or afraid to be exposed? Was it the time, maybe, that you broke your promise to a close friend or roommate, letting them down and hurting you? Or when you looked at that porn website late at night? Maybe when you failed that class your parents were paying for? Or when you glanced at that person's test beside you to get that right answer? Or when you went to that party off campus and drank too much? Or when you lied to your parents? Or when you talked bad about another person behind their back? Or maybe when you went too far physically with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Or what about that deep, dark secret from your past that you've never told anybody about? What if everything that you have done and even thought about today was flashed up on the screen behind or beside me right here in front of this whole, this whole room of people? What about from the past week, the past month, or even year? What would it feel like to sit in your seat and to be truly and fully exposed to those around you? I've had feelings of fear, shame, wanting to hide and run away, judgment, condemnation, humiliation, just to name a few feelings. Now imagine that Jesus walks through that door back there. He enters the room, he looks up at the screen, he looks then directly at you. But as you're starting to squirm in your seat, you're probably wondering, he's going to condemn me, he's going to judge me, he's going he's to be disappointed in me for I have disobeyed him, just like the principal did with Keaton. And yet, he says, do not fear. I love you, I care about you. My kindness overflows out of my affection for you. Come to me. I accept you because you are not defined by these things anymore. I will give you new life. I accept you because you are part of my family. Relief washes over you, right? You feel free, free enough that you leap out of your seat, you run to him and leap into his outstretched arms, just like a child returns to his father. You are accepted, right? Isn't this good news that we can approach the throne of Jesus to find true acceptance, not in fear, but in confidence? And we can have this confidence because Jesus, our true and perfect king, 
who died in our place on the cross, offers kindness. He grants new life, and he gives new identity. So those three things. And those are the three reasons why we can have this confidence. And those are the things that I want to focus on tonight. So first is that we can confidently approach the throne of Jesus and find true acceptance because he freely offers kindness. God's kindness overflows to us, just as David's overflowed to Mephibosheth. Our acceptance is based completely on Christ, not in anything that we have done, but because, of God's, but because God is full of mercy and kindness. Titus 3, 4, and 5 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God's kindness toward us is not based on anything that we have or haven't done. We don't have to have it all together or put on a facade to approach his throne. He gives us kindness based only on his grace and mercy. God accepts and approves us because of what Christ has already done in our place. Knowing this truth, we can then humbly expose ourselves and run to Jesus knowing that he will accept us in his kindness. Hebrews 4.16 then says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our king is waiting to grant us kindness. We just need to approach his throne. Secondly, is we can confidently approach the throne of Jesus and find true acceptance because he grants new life. So just like David gave Mephibosheth life in restoring him land, Jesus gives us new life in him. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We deserve death because of our sins. We're not small in God's sight. We can't try to make our sins less offensive to God. They're highly offensive. They actually, they deserve death. But we are no longer dead dogs in God's eyes. Because of Christ, we are now alive. Romans 6, 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have freedom to have life because Christ has given it to us through his resurrection from the dead. When we approach the throne of Jesus, we can have confidence that he will not see us as dead dogs anymore, but as new creatures because he has and will give us new life. Lastly, we can confidently approach the throne of Jesus and find true acceptance because he gives us a new identity. Not only does he grant life, but we have a new identity in Christ. We are part of God's family, just like Mephibosheth became part of David's family. Galatians 4.7 says that we are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Also, Ephesians 2.6, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of Christ, we are God's sons and daughters, heirs of, the he heirs of the throne of heaven, heirs of eternal life with him. Our sins 
no longer define us. Our position in Christ does. This new identity allows us then to expose ourselves to God and others without fear, knowing that our new identity is fixed in Jesus. Well, from 2 Samuel 9, then, we learn that we can confidently approach the throne of Jesus and find true acceptance because he freely offers kindness through his grace and mercy toward us. He grants us new life, um, no longer viewing us as dead dogs, and he gives us a new family identity, heirs of eternal life with him in heaven. Well, this good news is, is that it is true of those of you that have already placed your faith in Jesus. You are completely accepted because Christ has already graciously given you new life and a new identity. Your confidence to approach him then is in the truth of what Christ has already done for you when you placed your faith in him. And you can continue to have this confidence every single day for the rest of your life. When you continue to sin and and disobey God, you can actually return to him, not in fear, but with confidence. But this is also good news for those of you who maybe aren't Christians in this room, or maybe not sure about placing your faith in Jesus. Jesus wants to show you kindness. He wants to give you new life and bring you into his family. You too can be truly and fully accepted in Christ, no longer under the weight and guilt and penalty of sin. If you place your faith in him, asking him to come into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And if you have any questions about that and and want to talk with someone more about what it looks like to place your faith in Jesus, find me afterwards, talk with me afterwards, or fill out the blue card in your seat. Well, no matter where you are at, for your Christians in the room or maybe for your non-Christians, you all can confidently approach the throne of Jesus for acceptance because he freely offers kindness and he grants new life and identity. His arms are always waiting to embrace you. All you need to do is run to him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for the truth of your gospel and how we can have confidence to run to you, knowing that you, you do accept us fully because you offer kindness, you give us new life, and you give us a new identity when we come to you. So, Father, I pray for all of these people in this room, Lord, that they would understand that. I pray that when Christians in this room, is, is when, they, when they sin or when they disobey you, that they would remember this and know that they can confidently come back to you, not in fear, but in confidence, knowing that you will, you will receive them back. And I pray, Lord, for those that maybe are questioning where they're at right now, I pray that they would, uh, they would see that you are the one who, who will give them true acceptance. So I pray that they would see that and run to you and, and put their faith in you. So Father, thank you. And I just pray just for all of these people here. Just praise in Jesus' name. Amen.